Hi, I'm Matt Pacilli with the Virginia State Golf Association, and welcome to our Golf in the Commonwealth podcast. We're taking a break this week from the Meet the Hiker series to celebrate the recent Virginia Golf Hall of Fame ceremony, where we inducted seven amazing individuals who have left their mark on Virginia golf over the course of their careers, a few of which are still even shaping the game. Candy Comer, Wayne Jackson, David Partridge, Richard Smith, and Winsel Spencer are all members of the 2020 class, which was delayed induction due to the pandemic. And Moss Beecroft and David King are members of the 2021 class. We'll have audio from some of those speeches in upcoming episodes. Our sponsors for this year's induction ceremony are Horrigan Construction, Lansing Building Products, Markel, Marsh McLennan Agency, TSW, and Virginia Green. Big thanks to all of them for their support of the Virginia Golf Hall of Fame. For today's episode, though, I had the opportunity to talk with Dottie Pepper, who was with us to celebrate the induction of her friend, Candy Comer, and also serve as the MC for the event. As you'll hear throughout, I am trying to hold back some of my inner fanboy of Dottie Pepper and give a big introduction of her as we started talking. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dottie Pepper. <laughs> Don't get it too far away. Wow. Well, Dottie Pepper, thank you for joining us on Golf in the Commonwealth. I got to say, this is unexpected. My heart is like pounding oh, that I get to sit across the table and talk with you about golf. We could probably go all day, but we'll keep it short. You are here joining us for the Virginia Golf Hall of Fame induction ceremony. 17-time LPGA Tour winner, two-time major champion, and covered all of the majors on the PGA Tour in some way, shape, or form, and broadcaster and a great ambassador for the game. Welcome. Tell us about a little bit of your journey in golf. Well, first, thank you. Um, It's really cool to be here, and and especially cool that there's so many players that I know personally have gone into this Virginia Golf Hall of Fame in the previous four and now yeah. we are four at five and six and get to induct one of my best friends in the game or help induct uh, Candy Comer. So that, that will be extremely special. But um, my, my journey in the game was very organic. I started playing, it was public golf. Uh, I started at a driving range with five lessons from a journeyman professional who came through upstate New York. Um, my first set of golf clubs were given to me by my, by my grandmother, a junior set by Chichi Rodriguez Northwestern. Uh, with a three iron of all things in the bag a driver uh-huh. i think it was a two wood and a three wood and the three iron that I, I can't even imagine having a child have to learn on a set of golf clubs like that today but uh it worked and and i and i loved it and so played all the way through junior golf most of it against boys because we didn't have a huge opportunity for girls in upstate new york they're still we're still getting our traction and even the section of the high school public high school association that I live in is really only having their second girls championship. Mm -hmm. So here we are in 2021 and COVID interrupted. So that's just the second, but uh, finally girls in our area will be able to qualify for a state championship, which is, is pretty special. Uh, But went on to play college golf, amateur golf, Uh, went to the Q school with, with the case of the shanks managed to get around that. Okay. (laughs) Only hit one in the final round. And, um, I played on the tour from 88 to 2004 when I decided to uh, go into, well, I didn't know what I was really going to do, Uh but I knew injuries had caught up with me 
And uh, I think there was a little burnout in there as well from battling so many injuries and just not, not having the, the passion and the heart that I needed to, to play with because so much of that was just all that energy was being used trying to recover from injury. And I'm very, very fortunate that uh, NBC took a shot on me through, through people that I knew there. I did have a couple of people advocating for me. But uh, I also went in as, as a student of broadcasting, and I was all in. I wasn't trying to play. I still wasn't trying to play. Okay. Uh, this, this was my job. This was what I needed to become better at every time I really uttered a word on television and um, observed from the best, really fortunate that when asked, they, they responded with, yeah, sure, I'll help you. I'll tell you what my keys were. I'll tell you what my, my highs and things that I have learned to avoid the lows with are. And, um, you know, I was just, just <laughs> telling Gib that this year marked the time that I went past my time as a player in broadcasting. So this was my 18th year of broadcasting, and I played 17 years on tour. Wow. So there's a generation of people that will know Dottie Pepper as the on-course commentator and not necessarily as the LPGA champion. That, that's exactly right. And I, and I remember having a conversation with Roger Maltby about that and, and Gary Koch to an extent too, that you know, they both have spent, Gary was at ESPN for a bit or after he didn't play competitively anymore. Roger's only been with, with NBC, but I remember Roger saying at one point that, that people now know him more as a commentator than really the winner of the first Memorial Tournament. That's, exact, that's exactly right? what I was going to say because I watched Roger Malpe for so long and then you, you come to love the Memorial and Jack and all, all, all that that is. And then whenever the broadcast kind of pans to the wall of champions and it showed Roger Malpe as the first one, I was like, that guy used to play? Roger Mulvey in his <laughs> plaid pants. Yeah. <laughs> yes. He used to play, and he was a very, very gifted player. Uh, won the, the event that was in, up in, um, at Pleasant Valley, uh-huh. which became sort of um, – he became a rock star over that tournament because he lost the check. He lost the winner's check in a bar. <laughs> uh-huh. and, and it was ultimately returned to him, but he had had a really good time, and the, and the, you know, the big check that you can actually cash mm-hmm. – was left in the bar. Mm. So Roger, Roger is, uh, is a legend. And yeah. I was really fortunate in my time, especially starting into, into television, that I had legends to learn from and legends that became lifelong friends. Bob Murphy. The Murph. Gary Koch. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Um, let's talk a little bit about the women's game. And, and, and you had talked about getting started with just a kind of a sporadic set that wasn't a full set. Mm-hmm. And I think what I, what I would hope that we can just take a couple minutes to try to do is advocate for ways for women to get involved with the game, especially that mid-am segment, coming back to the game or taking up the game, women who are, who are golf adjacent, as the you know, term has been um, used. How, how do we do that? What, what, what are some of the things that maybe you've seen or struggles that you see that exist barriers to entry to to women in the game i think the the biggest barrier is there is a sense of i don't want to make a mistake i don't want to wear the wrong thing say the wrong thing play too slowly Uh, i have all these clubs that i don't know what to do with and i always go back to just go back to the basics go back to simple and if i'm going to and i did this when i was doing some women's golf clinics for for mastercard 
what are we wearing today? Mm. Um, we're going to wear appropriate clothing and especially appropriate footwear. Make, make the first step about you being comfortable physically and then being comfortable in the environment. So have a guide, you know, a guideline of what's acceptable where you're going just, and that's as easy as a phone call right? or getting on the club's website, whatever it might be, but be comfortable in that environment. I think it's, it's okay to play lousy golf. If it's going poorly, pick it up, mm -hmm. keep moving and have a golf, a set of golf clubs, whether you're renting them or they are your own, you don't need 14 clubs in the bag. You need the clubs you're really comfortable with, right? You need something you can play off the tee off the ground that you can move it forward. You can chip and putt it. Okay. And something that'll get you out of a bunker in one swing. Mm -hmm. If you can do those things, golf becomes a pretty fun place to be. Yeah. How has the women's game on tour changed from when you were on tour? I think the players look more like athletes. They train differently. They, are the power game is starting to become a real part of, of the women's game. I think the one thing I see when I go out and watch the women play is they don't take, they don't take the risk. Sometimes the guys do around the green, they'll not open the club up. They'll not hit the big flop shot. If they have to, they're not quite as adept at, um, they're more, just more conservative. Mm -hmm. I think around the greens, especially. So when that sort of stuff catches up, whether it be equipment or, working with the best players. I was really fortunate as a player. I could work on my bunker game with Paul Azinger. There's arguably in the last couple of decades, there's nobody better at hitting great bunker shots mm -hmm. and understanding how to hit great bunker shots and being free with or sharing that information. So do you think that us as golfers, as the competitive nature, sharing that information is something that we're not always very good at? is helping other players along in the game or just sort of an environment where we're talking about not only did I hit this shot, but here's how I hit this shot. How did you hit that shot? I think that's an area that we can grow in some of our relationships that we have as golfers and not and make them a little bit more transformational than transactional of like, hey, great shot there on 18. Yeah, thanks. You've nailed it. You and I don't. I hate it when people when people come up and would give you information. I wanted I'll, when I need it or when I think I need it, I'm going to ask. So go ask. And people were really free to ask Joanne Carter. Hey, and it's as simple as can I watch you hit a few bunker shots? Mm -hmm. Can I watch you hit a few chip shots? You don't really. So you're looking for what you need out of it. You don't necessarily have to get that other player's opinion, but just take a closer look. That's yeah. free. Right. That's pretty much free. But I think you're. you're your question is exactly what people need to ask. Hey, can I just watch you for a bit? Just ask a question. Yeah. Yeah, that's one thing that we just don't, we don't do. do. We well, just don't. Because don't we do don't want to hear no. Right, but yeah. But usually you're not going to get that answer. Let's talk a little bit about your book. You just wrote a book, um, excuse me, Letters to a Future Champion, My Time with Mr. Pulver. Talk a bit about that. Unpack the title for those of us that don't know what it is. And then tell us a little, little bit more. The title came from, well, Mr. Pulver was a founding member of the Northeastern New York PGA section, life member of the PGA. And as a retired professional, he was, he was my teacher. He was my mentor, but he was also, he taught me about agronomy, about architecture, about club making. Uh, it was really life skills, mm -hmm. education, all that wound into 
as an 81-year-old taking a 14-year-old under his wing. Mm. Not many people have that opportunity. Uh, or it would be just left to your memory of what you really had, or maybe a, a scratchy note here or there. My, my greatest gift from him was that after every lesson he wrote, and then more often, because there were, we, we didn't, we didn't take, I didn't take as many lessons as there are letters in this three-ring binder, <laughs> but he would leave a letter in my family's mailbox. And it was normally typewritten, sometimes with a reading assignment, but it was everything that we had worked on on the range and things to be aware of going forward, uh, things about pacing me, wanting to go faster, fly, fly higher, go farther, uh, taking things as things naturally should be evolving through a junior's career, um, kind of warning me about pitfalls, valuing again education. It was all of these things wound into five and a half years worth of letters. And I had been told you know, a couple of times by people that I'd shared my three ring binder with, and it's a lot of them are on those onion skin papers, so mm -hmm. you still have to be a little bit careful yeah. of them, that you know, there's, there's a book here. And I said, well, that's very nice, you're very biased, and who has the time to do that? And then what happened in March a year ago? We all had a lot of time on our hands. Yeah. And I wasn't, I was, it wasn't even my time to be working because CBS does the early block mm -hmm. of January and February and then switches to be a basketball company. So March was our normal shutdown anyway. Wasn't planning on starting a book, but it worked out that way because I just had a lot of time, especially in upstate New York, where we were really locked down. Yes. And I thought it was going to be a, a book where it was more like a booklet. It was just gonna be Mr. Pulver's letters and tiny little snippets associated kind of my, my thoughts on those letters. Peter Thompson, the, the multi-British Open champion, wrote a small book like that and I really was gonna model it about a lot like what Peter had done. Letters that he had written, articles that he had cons uh, consulted on, things that were important in, in his lifetime. And then I opened this forbidden file and it was he didn't really want me reading other people's instruction advice. I could read about the people, the places, the competitors, equipment, but I couldn't, he did not want me reading technical swing articles, mechanics. And I figured after 35 or more years now that it was okay to open this folder because his son, prior to his passing, had given me more of the stuff from George Sr. Okay. And in it was exactly what I thought I was going to find. All those articles underwritten in certain places, scratchy little notes in the margins, whether he liked it, didn't like it, agreed, disagreed. But what I was not prepared to find was every letter that I had written to him. Oh, gosh. And those letters went right up until um, he passed in January of 86. My last letter to him was in January of 86. Uh -huh. So I, I found six years of my letters to him and talked to three close friends about the project. They knew what I was working on and they both said, this has to stop and go bigger and really change to a much deeper, broader scope because you not, you don't have just his remarks to him or to you. You have how the relationship really impacted him as well. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was, that was a, that was a tearful day. Wow. Yeah. And you're tearful now and you're, making me feel that way that is <laughs> it was it was just special and, and it and so now i had to start digging more because who's george pulver well nobody really knew unless you were from upstate new york so 
We did a timeline from the way when he was born in 1898 up to when he died in 1986. We did highlights of his career because it, at one point he was a head professional of three different places at the same time. Mm-hmm. And they were all in the same region. That wasn't like he was had a place down in Florida for those, for those the winter months and then coming back upstate to New York. He was a workaholic and did everything about the game. So we really we did a great job of piecing together where he was in his entire life. I'm going to have to take a look at that because I grew up in upstate New York, as I told you, in Ithaca, yeah. a year from Saratoga Springs. And we had a legendary professional at our club for a very long time, Lou Odessa, oh, yeah. who I wonder you know, where he um, interacted with Mr. Pulver. I bet they did somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, let's cover a couple more topics because I, you know, talk about your relationship with Candy Comer and <laughs> how you all know each other as well as you do and how special it is to see your friend inducted into the Virginia Golf Hall of Fame. Well, we know each other first off through college golf with Candy playing or transferring from South Carolina to North Carolina. Um, me playing at Furman. So we played in a lot of the same circles. The schedules really mirrored each other. We weren't at every tournament at the same time, but we did play a lot of college golf together. And we were both among the best players on our team. So we played when Furman and North Carolina were, were grouped together. Most of the time I was, I was in her group and we just kind of hit it off. We uh-huh. were kind of cut from the same cloth. Um, not a huge, uh, I wouldn't say circle of trusted friends, but we hit it off immediately uh, we were mischievous together we traveled together we were partners on the east west team together for the ncaa we were curtis cup teammates and roommates and both in each other's first weddings so <laughs> it goes back back a long time and uh, i mean she we, she was actually my teacher for a while that's hard okay when one of your best best pals is, is your teacher um it was just We've been lifetime friends, and her son Michael is kind of the son that I never had. So when mom one can't answer the phone, mom two does. Oh wow! Yeah. When was she? When were you working with her as as your instructor? Uh, toward the end of my career. Okay. Uh, so it would have been in the around two thousand two and three. Okay. Talk a little bit about your mate. I mean, you've won major championships. Mm-hmm. What's that like? Like what? I don't. I mean. I don't know how to even ask that question, and I don't know how to set you up for an adequate answer. But There were weeks reading about what, how Nicholas set his schedule up around the four majors. Mm-hmm. That's kind of there were there were four high points of the season, and those were those major championships. Yeah. So that's, that's how I kind of set my focus. And I wanted to peek around those, figured out whether I needed to play my way in or take the week off and, and prepare ahead. I kind of uh, my best success in the major championships overall was when I played my way in. And a lot of times it wasn't because on the LPGA tour, you didn't have the weeks on the schedule to take a lot of weeks off. There weren't as many tournaments. So it wasn't Mm -hmm. like you had like the PGA tour with 48 events on a 52 week schedule. So you played just about every week you could, but I did a couple of times take the week off prior to majors, especially the U S open. That one was a highlight. And if I look back, that's when I really um, regret not having finished the deal. I had, I had, I had my chances for mm-hmm. sure. But it's just a week where there's more focus, and I certainly pride myself on those those two weeks. Uh, 
you, you prepared for them. But it was also the two that I won on. I knew exactly what was coming because I, I did win them both on the same golf course. Mm-hmm. But they become a focus. Um, you remember parts of those weeks, I think, better, better than others, good and bad. But I don't know. It just to me, it seemed to be just kind of what you're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to be going out there and playing your best at the at the right times. And yeah. those were the right times. Right. We talked a little bit about the women's game and mm. some of the way that, that women play around the greens. And I wanted to get your perspective on this. I had the opportunity to follow Lauren Coughlin, who's a UVA grad right. and um, VSGA women's amateur champion when she played in the Pure Silk at Kingsmill this year. And I really enjoyed that experience because watching the women's game seemed to me uh, a lot more relatable than watching the PGA Tour. It's exciting and fun to watch Bryson drive it a long way, and it's exciting to see some of these incredible up and downs. But what happens in the women's game is much more similar to what the average golfer plays. It's, it's more relatable on, yeah. on so many so many terms. Um, the build of the players, the the distance they carry the ball, the way they manage around the golf course because they can't necessarily get to every par five and two. They can't take every bunker complex on them. You have to, they have to move their golf ball around a little bit better. But I think overall, because the power factor, while it's there, it's not to the extent that the men's is, um, Technically, they're better golf swings mm-hmm. overall because there's not the strength and speed to overpower a mistake. So I think it's and you can get closer. Mm-hmm. You can get closer to to learn more. Oh, you get yeah, you yeah. get so up close. And I mean, what they were dealing with at the Pure Silk was you know sort of opening back up after COVID and everything, and That's the right. attendance wasn't what it what it was. But I would st- I mean, I was very close, yeah. and you can get very close, and it was really really exciting. To very close, and this is my my last question. We talked about it before we before we came on. I would love to hear a little bit about your perspective at the PGA Championship this year when Phil Mickelson won, because you had one of those calls that was very memorable to me in watching the broadcast was as the 18th hole closed in with fans as Phil and Brooks are trying to make their way to the green. Can you describe that environment a little bit where were you when this is happening and you had a really fascinating uh illustration of of what you and your the folks who were with you assisting you and doing what you do how you made your way through it well i I was probably 60 or 70 yards ahead of the players to start that's where i normally call a tee shot from so i can speak in a normal tone and then you were able to get up and see phil's lie and everything so So take us through that phil had driven it left into the rough uh, very, very close to where the fans were. I think probably had to move a few. So I got there first, got the yardage, saw the lie, and then saw it all sort of filling in and collapsing behind him. So I scurried ahead. He, let it, he hit the shot, and then I scurried immediately ahead to get ahead of Brooks, who was 50 or so yards ahead, because it was collapsing so quickly that I, I didn't really feel safe. Mm-hmm. So if I can get ahead of Brooks then maybe we can all take off. So it was, Rich Beam was calling it side by side with me for most of the day for Sky. And myself out there, I, we had a spotter 
and then also my the guy who handles the monitor for me so i can see shots that are on tape okay um <laughs> called called brooks a shot and then realized it was starting to collapse ahead of us from the right and from the left and that this is a scene that i've i've only seen on television certainly with tiger at the tour championship when he won a few years ago but also you know old open championships yeah when the, it all filled in but it seemed a little in in hindsight that seems a lot less chaotic than what we went through through here so the five of us that were inside the ropes working in that same space joined all joined arms and plowed our way through and it was literally get out of our way we're coming through get out of the way and some not very happy people but if you, you would have been trampled if if you hadn't if you had just stopped it would have been really bad and how close was everyone to to the green complex at the time they putted out probably 30 yards away uh -huh. and it was just a massive humanity but it yeah. went, it went <laughs> it went full packing all the way left all the way front all the way right they went up into the dunes and came back out behind the only place that was really quiet ish was directly behind the putting surface because they did have ropes up in that section and they had police officers that had come in and, and sort of held all that at bay because that would have that was the putting green and access to the clubhouse and okay and all the rest of that um it was wild yeah it was absolutely wild but we just joined arms and plowed our way through wow well, Dottie, thank you so much. I can't thank you enough. It's been really exciting to have the opportunity to talk with you because, you know, at the time that you were you were dominating and leading on the LPGA tour was when I was getting into golf and watching yeah. broadcasts and to be able to talk with Dottie Pepper, who was a dominant player in the women's game at the time that I was getting into the game and consuming golf in every way that I could. It's it's really special. It's I know it's special to Candy and special to our other inductees to have you with us for the Virginia Golf Hall of Fame induction. So thank you so much. This will be, this will be a special night. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Golf in the Commonwealth, and big thanks to Dottie Pepper. Thanks again to our Virginia Golf Hall of Fame sponsors, Horrigan Construction, Lansing Building Products, Markel, Marsh McLennan Agency, TSW, and Virginia Green. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the fairway soon.